Thanks for tuning in to the Banner Church Podcast, recorded live in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. For more information, visit banner.church today. Enjoy the message. That is our new series we're going to launch for Easter, which if you didn't know is literally next Sunday. It's crazy. Uh, we're really excited. Uh, I've just been so encouraged by what God is beginning uh, to do through uh, all of you, honestly. It's been really fun to see and to testify to, just stepping out and taking those steps. I know if you've been here for the past couple weeks, you've seen those top three cards. You you might have been like, yeah, I'll write it down or not. But it's been really cool to see people who have been texting me saying, hey, I, I wrote down my top three, and I have seen God do some incredible things already in the top three. Um, the other day, I was with my, my friend Scott here. We were at breakfast at First Watch, and we were checking out, and I just asked the person who was, you know, uh, doing the check you know, at the stand. I was like, hey, what are you doing for Easter? Because that's like the best conversation starter, and if they say nothing, then you're in, right? <laughs> so I was like, what are you doing for Easter? And she said, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing anything. And I said, oh, I said, you should come hang out with us. She's like, oh, really? I said, yeah, you should come hang out with us. Like, we, I lead a church just right down the road. And she looked at me, and she's like, really? And I was like, yeah, really? And, uh, <laughs> and it was cool, you know, because, you know, we both had tattoos. We were talking about that. And, and I was with Scott, and I just said, why don't you come hang out? She said, well, I work Saturday. I work Sunday morning. And I said, well, great. Why don't you just uh, come to my house? Come over for dinner. And come over. My wife and I showed her a picture of my kids. I was like, look, my kids are cute. They're crazy. She's like, okay. And so I gave her my number. I said, would you, would you just shoot me a text if you're interested? She texted Scott and I as we were driving back and just said, hey, I, I'm just celebrating. She had some things that she moved here to do, and she said God has done that work, and she was celebrating really being a, a, a milestone season in her life for that and said, like, she felt like it was a God encounter. And I want to encourage you that God has put you around others for a purpose and there might be somebody who is on your top three that you haven't even met yet. But this week, you have an opportunity to speak hope into them. And it's not complicated. It's not difficult. But it does take just stepping out. And I encourage you, there are people around you who need to know that they're loved. And you can be the catalyst to them experiencing hope and healing for the first time in their life. Bring them to church Sunday, Easter. Man, we got, what, 8.30, 10, and 11.30. We're going to have services. It's going to be incredible. We got a glow-in-the-dark egg hunt. It's amazing. But I've loved seeing what God is doing. Um, Delaney, our incredible family pastor, was hosting today. Doing a great job. And uh, I don't know if you follow us online or on, on uh, social media or you follow Banner Youth Think they have one too, but our youth group has just been doing an amazing job. And I've been so proud of Delaney and specifically uh, Austin, who is our, our main youth leader here uh, at Banner Church. It has been so incredible. I, it, I'll say this as someone who's done a lot of ministry in a lot of different sizes and, you know, shapes and, you know, versions. It's really easy to grow something from 100 to like 120, 150. It's really hard to grow something from zero to anything because it's really easy to get people to come to something when you already have it started. Nobody wants to be number one or number two. So when you find those people, those are such special people. So if you are number one or number two youth student, I want to say you're amazing. God bless you. You're incredible. 
Uh, but it's been cool to see them have, like you guys are averaging like 50 kids at your events. You're at youth nights. I saw you had 13. Most of those are from the neighborhood. Kids coming out, uh, engaging in youth ministry. So I want to tell you, Banner Church, if you see Austin, uh, if you don't know what he looks like, Delaney will point him out to you. Uh, but if you see Austin, can you just encourage him and pray for him and bless him? Because him and his team are doing amazing and amazing jobs. So, man, excited. Well, today is, is Palm Sunday. We really kick off Holy Week, and we kick off all the great things for Easter and Good Friday. On Friday, we're doing a service at 7 p.m., all kinds of good stuff. Um, but today is a really special day, and normally I would preach a very similar message regarding uh, the background of Palm Sunday and, and really the entrance of Jesus and, and, the, and the term Hosanna and what that meant. But today I want to share something a little different as we wrap up our Meals with Jesus series because we're going to end on what is probably the most significant meal uh, in Scripture, probably one of the most significant. Uh, and, and I want us to look at a common theme that's running over and over in Luke. And my favorite thing about when you do a whole, when you cover most of a book, even when you're just doing sections, is you begin to see themes that are standing out. One of the themes that we see over and over again in Luke is the contrast of expectation and reality. And specifically on Palm Sunday, we are going to encounter the contrast uh, between the expectation of what worldly peace, peace looks like and the reality of what God-given eternal peace looks like. Expectation versus reality is always an interesting part of our life. I don't know about you, if you have ever uh, had an expectation and had the reality be profoundly different than how you expected it uh, to happen. I found some great photos of people that ordered things and got a different reality than their expectation. Here's one, and just stay on them. I'll tell you to do the next one. Here's one of my favorites. There's this mug, and it's supposed to be a color-changing mug, but when it arrived, they had just printed the photo on the mug. All right, go to the next one. I like this one. Bride ordered peacock thing wedding cake, but got a lopsided turkey with leprosy. Now, this one wins caption alone. Caption alone, lopsided turkey with leprosy might be the greatest thing maybe written since Great Expectations. Uh, but I love it. Okay, next one. Okay, this one, I like his captions. Bought a rug online for my room and realized the importance of specifying the size of the product you're seeing. Doesn't say how much, but based on his frown, I'm going to guess a lot. All right, this last one is my favorite one. The Yeezys. <laughs> These are amazing. First of all, if he didn't get ripped off for $750 plus $1320 for shipping, uh, then uh, I would have been so pumped. If I spent $1320 on these, I would be so amped. But $750, livid. How, oh man, how furious would you be? I mean, you're not sending those back, right? <laughs> like, that address is gone. Uh, 750. But there's things in life that show up uh, different than we expect, right? right. I, a uh, couple, let's see, two years ago, I got to go see the Grand Canyon, and I had expectations of the Grand Canyon because you see photos, but scale is difficult. And then you go to the Grand Canyon, and you're like, oh my gosh. Right? People say, like, oh, it's a hole in the ground. Like, no, it's not a hole in the ground, it's the hole in the ground. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
Like, come on. People are like, it's just a hole in the ground. Like, you peasants, it's, it's amazing. Have you not been there? Like, it's amazing. It goes on for miles. It's beautiful. It's great. You try to hike it. You feel like you're going to die. It's amazing. It's great. Um, and uh, I, I loved it. When I went there, I, we saw the sunset. I hiked down to the bottom of it. We camped down at the bottom, and the sunset, it was just amazing. I was like, this is, this is not just a hole in the ground, right? One of, uh, I, I don't know, for me, one of the biggest <laughs> paradoxes or contrasts between expectation and reality was becoming a parent. Now, I didn't grow up with what I would consider like a deeply paternal instinct. I wasn't one of those, those guys like, I just can't wait to have a family and have kids. I was like perfectly content in my 20s, doing my thing with my hot wife and playing music till like one o'clock in the morning in Seattle. It was great. So at no point in my mind did I think, what if I just stopped doing all of this and had some small version of me poop on me? That sounds amazing. I can't wait for that. I had no, no desire whatsoever. I just figured, yeah, I want to slip through the net eventually right and I uh when we had a kid I was just like okay what are the expectations and so you know you do a baby shower and like new parents man like we you just need to come to the terms and we can laugh about it together but nobody's more prideful than a new parent because like you know you don't know but you're pretending like you do you don't know what a baby needs. Like, oh, no, I know. I babysit my cousin all the You don't know. You don't know. Trust me. As someone who has kids, you don't know. You don't flip and know. But you think you know. And so what you do is you make a registry of a bunch of clothes that you think you need but are completely worthless. They're worthless. You get these outfits. Let me just tell you what putting clothes on a baby at 2 o'clock in the morning is like. It's like a half-drunk raccoon, and your job is to jam it in a wet paper bag. That is essentially... <laughs> That is essentially what you're doing at 2 o'clock in the morning. But just imagine you've been in some kind of prison where they've not allowed you to sleep for 18 days. And in the morning, the stakes are so high because it could be poop or it could be vomit. You don't know. The lights aren't on because you're afraid to turn the lights on because you might catch your own reflection and die, right? That is parenting. And so you buy all these ornate outfits, and at the end of the day, your kid doesn't even care because their only primary goal is to get the outfits off of themselves. Right? And so I remember we had all these like ornate, these outfits people bought us. And we're like, all right, we're just going to throw those away. And someone, God bless their heart, bought us these things that was like just arms and like mittens so they don't scratch their eyes out, which is a crazy thing babies do too. It's like, what if I just scratch my face? And then it was just like arms and then like sleeping bag. That was it. It was just a tube and you could like tie it off like a sack of oranges if you needed to. And that was it. It was amazing. And so at night, you just kind of like slide it up, change the diaper, right? The, ex the reality was way different from the expectations. You meet people like, I just, I can't wait to do a photo shoot with my baby and yada, yada. I'm like, I'm not going to see you in eight months. And when I do, you're going to cry the first time I see you because you haven't slept. <laughs> like, that's going to be the reality. Counterpoint, having kids is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Having kids is the greatest thing ever. And you know how it's the greatest thing ever because it's the only person that you will allow to poop on you and still love them, right? There's a short list of people who in the same day can poop and throw up on you and you will love them more somehow. Oh, it's amazing. Child, children is great. We're doing a parenting group Wednesdays at 6 o'clock. But man, I love being a parent. I had no idea what to expect. I was an only child. And you know, when you're a single guy, no one has you come watch their kids, rightfully so. You're an idiot, right? Like you're not supposed to watch children. You can barely watch yourself. 
If you get you to bed on time, you succeeded. So I didn't know anything. And so when I became a parent, I was just like trying to figure it out. And I got to say, the reality of being a parent is incredible. It is absolutely incredible. It teaches you so much. You learn so much. You grow so much. And just like the, the other day, I was preparing the sermon. Actually, I started preparing the sermon almost a month ago. And I, one day after I was writing, I was riding around uh, with my son. And adoption is a whole other thing. And it's, it's, it's amazing. It's beyond what I expected. And I was riding around with my son on this little, like, uh, mini bike we have. And we've, like, customized it with different spray paint and, you know, opened it up. Took out the, you know, the limiter because you got to go, you know. You got to haul. So we, you know, sanded that thing down step one, like, 15. You're not limiting me to 15. So we haul, but he's got a helmet on. It's cool. Um, we haul in this thing, and he's just chatting up and laughing and waving at people, having a good time. And I'm just thinking, like, man, this is incredible. Not every moment feels like that, right, parents? Yeah. Not every moment feels like that, but man, the moments that do, man, they're amazing. They're they just perceive, they just go beyond what I could have ever expected. But if I'm being honest and I tell new parents, I'm like, man, I had no idea what to expect. And I think if I had stuck so closely to how I thought it should go and what I expected, I would have been frustrated even though it was greater than what I expected. Because so much of life is a contrast of expectation and reality. Palm Sunday is a contrast. Let's see if this thing is rocking. Palm Sunday is a contrast of expectation and reality. Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem, rides in to palms and coats being laid at his feet. He rides in as the answer to what the Jewish people had been expecting for generations, and yet he is totally unexpected. They're expecting a Messiah, but what they get, they did not expect. They're expecting a Savior, but what they got is different than their expectation. For generations, the people of Israel have been expecting a Messiah that would bring them peace. But they had expectations for how that peace would come about. How that peace would look. How it would happen. But what's amazing is that God had a greater plan that would exceed their expectations because God was going to bring about a peace that would exceed their expectations. I want to look at that today. If you're with me, would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19? We're going to finish out our Meals with Jesus series here today. Luke chapter 19. As you do, let's pray together this morning. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can open your word and see so clearly the heart of Christ. And God, we pray that as we read together that we would reflect that heart in our own life today. In the peace that you promised that we would receive it together in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, let's jump into verse 28. It's, when it says he, it means Jesus. It says when he, Jesus, said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So he's heading towards Jerusalem. It says when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You'll say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away 
<coughs> sorry. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. It's a little odd sidebar here scripturally. This, I mean, scripture is important, right? Why does Luke devote like eight verses to a donkey? Well, he's building this expectation as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem because this is something that was actually prophesied about way back in Zechariah. In Zechariah 9.9, the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous in having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is beginning to fulfill uh, these, these uh, messianic prophecies and has been fulfilling these messianic prophecies um, over his life. So, verse 36, you also with me? Okay, it says, And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So they took off their cloaks, they put them on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, quote, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Which is a great response. <laughs> so Jesus rides in, let's talk about this. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. People are praising. It says his disciples are saying, blessed is the king, peace in heaven. This is an incredibly powerful moment in the history of the word of God, in the history of what's happening here in the life of Jesus. This is called the triumphal entry. And what we have is the disciples of Jesus making a huge amount of noise. But you have to understand this moment because it's when we think disciples, often we'll think the 12. But Jesus had levels of disciples, right? Kind of like at this church, right? We have, uh, we have our lead staff. We have our, our, our staff teams. We have leaders. We have team members. And then we have the people who refuse to serve their church. You know, it's kind of like different levels. Right? <laughs> they didn't feel as insulted in first service on that. I don't know. In second service, you got some things to work through. Y'all know, I'm just joking. Calm down. People are like, we decided never to go back to that church because they want us to serve. Um, I'm like, sorry, I don't know. Different Bible, I guess. It doesn't matter. The point is that people are following Jesus. People are following Jesus at different levels, right? And so there are the 12, there's the three there in a circle, and then there's the 70 uh, who are, there's usually about 70 who are always following, and then there's a larger crowd that depending on the things he said would either stay with him or disperse. That'd be none of us here, but let's say there was a big crowd of people that would follow. And so what's happening is that there's a level of his disciples and followers who are literally standing around saying, Praise God, the king is here. He comes in the name of the Lord to bring peace, which is a crazy thing to say when you're ruled by the Roman Empire and they murder people for less than that. That's a big statement. That's a big, that's the kind of thing that's going to get you banned off Twitter these days, right? It's a big thing to say. Hey, the king's here. It's like nobody tells the government right, <laughs> that oppresses us. 
as a subjected people as they were. So it's important because it, it means something for them to say it. Are you with me? It means something for them to say it. These people, this is not just the 12. This is a gathering of people. It means something for them to say it. So why are they saying it? What are they expecting that's causing them to shout such provocative things about Jesus? Let me give you some historical context. Can we do that? I think one of the most important things is that we have a biblical context and a historical biblical context. They're both uh, together because the, the Bible and Scripture is also a narrative history of, of the world as well. And so what's important is that the people who are shouting and celebrating, they're not doing so in a void. They're doing so in a context. And so to understand, we need to look at who they are. Okay, so this is Israel. These are Israelites. These are Jewish people who are shouting this. They have an expectation. Now, Israel was the chosen people of God. And if you were to take your Bible, and if you were to open up to Genesis, to go back to the very beginning, you would see that God created Adam and Eve to dwell with him in the garden, for people to dwell with him in perfect unity. That was the created intent but what happens is that Adam and Eve choose rebellion against a relationship with God, and they choose to do their own thing and go their own way. And isn't that the choice of love? How can there be suffering? Well, because there's always a choice. It's not love if there's not a choice, right? And so they're given a choice. You can choose to love me and walk with me, or you can make yourself the God of your life and watch all of the things that come with that. And they say, I think we're going to do that one. We're going to choose rebellion. And so, therefore, there is sin. And because they choose separation, they are, by nature of their choice of separation, separated from God. But what's amazing about God is that He is merciful. Because, I mean, there's only two. Bro, just start over. But He says, no, I'm going to bring about salvation because humans are radically imperfect. He says, I'm going to bring about, and promises way back, you could see it way back in Genesis, promises to bring about salvation. And all throughout Genesis, what we see is God's continual affirmation of this salvation he promises to bring. God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham. He says, through your line, you're going to be the father of many nations. He says, Abraham, go out and count the stars. That's how many that's how many are going to come through you in this great nation. And through Abraham and through his descendants, he fathers the nation of Israel. And he shows them a place to dwell. And he makes a covenant with them that they would be his people. But by the end of Genesis, we have a problem. There's a big problem by the end of Genesis. The people of God, who are supposed to be living in this beautiful place, are living in slavery and are being systematically wiped out, systematically destroyed, and oppressed and beaten down and ground down. And so they cry out to God, like, wait a second, God, this is not your plan. You're supposed to, we're supposed to be like how you bring the Savior for the earth. Save us. And he does. In a really unique way. To exert his power and authority and also to remind them that he's going to bring about someone to save them from something even greater. And so God sends the plagues. Have you ever seen or watched anything on the plagues? You might have, or if you read in Scripture, you read all the different plagues. But the big one, the big one is the final one, where death is going to come and judge the oppressors that is Egypt. And he says to Israel, listen, 
What you need to do is you need to go out on this day and you need to select a lamb and that lamb you will sacrifice and you will take the blood of that lamb and you will put it on the posts of your door and when death comes against those in evil and who are committing evil against me, they will be judged and you will be saved because the blood that was shed. God begins to teach them something. He begins to teach. How does an almighty God teach finite people almighty principles? He begins to teach them with these ideas and symbols that stand for something so powerful and crucial. And so this is the first lamb selection day. And this is the first Passover meal. He says, have a meal. Eat together. And so they begin a tradition that's going to continue for 1,500 years and, and on until today of eating a Passover meal. And judgment comes because of the innocent life that is shed for them passes over them. And God's going to use this all their other time to teach them. And they're freed. It leads them out to the desert, confirms his covenant with them, and says, listen, I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to teach you how to live in union with me because it's through you that I'm going to bring the Savior who's going to save the world. There is a problem, the problem of sin, and the Savior is going to come, and he is going to rescue the world. God leads them to the promised land, and God has given them this law. Why? Because the people were sinful. And when they sinned, God gave them uh, as a tool, he gave them a sacrifice for atonement. We're going to talk about this on Good Friday a lot. But it was a powerful symbol because often in our modern world, we don't think sin has a cost, but it does. And he taught his people there is a cost to sin. There is a price for sin, and it is death. And now the sacrifice of a lamb, it's not like there's something special about sheep's blood that takes away sin. It is symbolic of what God is doing and what he is going to do. He's teaching his people. But just like the garden, just like the desert, just like the promised land, the people choose sin and rebellion over and over and over, just like all of us. So Israel is destroyed, it's overtaken, it's oppressed. And for years, God would send prophets to remind his people, listen, I have not forgotten you. I'm sending a Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. I'm sending an anointed one to rescue you, to save you, to restore you. And so for thousands of years, the people of God participated in this practice in Jerusalem. They would select a lamb on lamb selection day, a perfect and spotless lamb. They would slaughter the lamb. They would eat this feast, this meal, and they would remember that it is by God and his power alone that they are rescued from slavery and oppression. And this is the day, as they're beginning to select the lamb, this is the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the perfect lamb, as the Messiah. That's why it's a big deal to them. Because they've been waiting for 1,500 years. And Jesus rides into town. But uh, he's not really what they expected. He's not, here comes this guy. No great appearance, no great stature riding a baby donkey, riding a tiny donkey. 
It's not what they expected. So the question is, what were they expecting if they're shouting? If they're, if they're shouting and declaring the king of kings, if they're shouting and declaring, what were they expecting? Well, in the Old Testament, they were given two kinds of prophecies. And the prophecies about the Messiah almost make uh, the prophecies look like paradoxical. They almost look contrasting. Because you have two thoughts. One of them is you have prophecies that the Messiah is going to be a suffering servant. But then you have these other prophecies that he's going to be a victorious king. Those seem really contrasting. He's going to suffer. He's going to be beaten. And he's going to win. You're like, no. <laughs> Those are two different people. <laughs> That's confusing. And so there was a lot of fill in the blanks that they did based off earthly expectations. Let me give you a couple prophecies here. Y'all still with me? Okay, Isaiah 11. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. The Messiah was going to come through. David, King David. It says, And a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide, decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall, he shall judge the poor. A little tongue twister there. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and, and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Strong, strong. Contrast, Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. God promises a Messiah to the people of Israel. But he says he's going to suffer, he's going to become persecuted, but he's also going to be victorious, and he's going to be uniting. And they were like, that doesn't make sense. Isaiah 9, 6, explain this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They were confused. Why? Because there's nothing more human than trying to do God's work and fulfill God's promises with earthly means and expectations. That is a profoundly human experience. God promised it. God said it would come about by his might. But let me figure out the way and define for God how I think it's going to happen. God, it's not possible. According to who? <laughs> God who breathed the stars into existence? Might be possible. So the, there was a Jewish cultural expectation See, Israel as a nation was defined by the presence of God. So in their mind, if God was going to bring about a Messiah, which is the word for anointed one, a Messiah to save them, there was an assumption that his rise would lead to a rise in their national superiority and establishment, which I think is a semi-reasonable expectation. They thought that that's how it was going to come about. And when you read, the, when you read what's promised, you're like, that okay, I could see how they could maybe go that direction. But there's some things they expected. They expected the Messiah would come as a strong leader, as a king. They expected that the Messiah would bring victories over oppressive forces, specifically the Romans. They expected that the Messiah would establish the kingdom of Israel and restore the promised land to them. 
They expected that the Messiah would purify the temple from evil and pagan influences, of which it was full of. They expected that the Messiah would bring an eternal peace on the Jewish people, on their land, on their nation, and on their children. And so this is the thinking when Jesus rides into town. They think the king is finally here. He's finally ready to kick off this uprising. He's kind of ditched this early hippie stuff, and he's ready to make it happen, and he's going to start throwing down, and it's going to be incredible. This is the expectation. They go out on Palm Sunday thinking this is the victorious king riding in. And we know that because they give him a kingly welcome. You ever wonder, why are they putting palm trees and coats on the ground for this dude riding a small donkey. Well, in John 12, 13, it says, a large crowd that had come from the feast heard Jesus was coming. They took branches of the palm leaves, went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This was a common practice when a king would ride into Jerusalem or ride into a city. You go out ahead and you make the way smooth. You make the path clear. You make way for the king. Why? I mean, the, the roads were okay, <laughs> but they weren't great. Right? You go out and you flatten them, and it was an honor. You would lay these things down. You prepare the way. So they're saying something profound here. This guy's coming in as the king. And now, culturally, this doesn't make sense for us. Why would you do that? You don't even know if he's going to do that. Because this was a common cultural practice. It's the hardest part as a modern church is that we don't live in this century Judea. So we're mildly detached from what was happening. We understand our political situation somewhat. We understand our social situation somewhat, right? We kind of have like a roundabout idea. Even if you don't turn on the news, like you're alive, you kind of understand what's happening. But we don't necessarily have a political context for them or a social context. We don't know what came before. A lot, many of us don't know what came before this moment or after. So it lives in a void, but it doesn't live in a void for them. It actually lives in an important time in Judea. Because in this time, the people of Judea were in constant revolt against the Romans and previous empires. For the past hundred years has been one of the most tumultuous times in Jewish history of uprising after uprising after uprising after uprising. Over and over. One of the most famous ones. A hundred years before the birth of Jesus, Judah Maccabee, a.k.a. the Hebrew Hammer, which is a great nickname. I got to say, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fire nickname. The Hebrew Hammer, amazing. hundred years before Jesus, the Seleucid Empire, the empire that was formed after Alexander the Great. After Alexander the Great. Judah Maccabee comes in. He defeats. He leads an uprising. He defeats the empire that is oppressing Judea. He defeats the people who are holding Jerusalem. He rides into the temple. What does he do? He kicks out all of the pagan practices and he purifies the temple. And he begins to lead Jerusalem. And then what happens? He gets killed because he's not eternal. <laughs> and unlike Jesus, he doesn't come back. Soup's dead still. And this is a profoundly common desire by Jewish revolutionaries. The model is 
that you defeat the oppressor and you ride into Jerusalem and you purify the temple and you stand in significance and authority as the anointed one who releases the oppressor. There were many of these revolts. Even one of Jesus' followers says he was a zealot. Zealots were the most extreme version of this. There were many of these over the past hundred years leading up to Jesus who had built an expectation, here's what's going to happen. The hard part was, uh, that's not how Jesus showed up on the scene. It's very confusing. He can draw a crowd of thousands, but he doesn't even own a sword. Right? I mean, Peter's got one. He's got nothing. We don't even know if he had like a spoon. Right? Yeah. He has no military aspirations. And in fact, you would think, right, if you were going to come and build influence, you'd hang out with what, like generals or insurrectionaries or I don't know, whatever their version of the press was, just papyrus and pens, whatever it was. You would think that here's this guy who literally hangs out with lepers, hookers, tax collectors, like the people that nobody wants. And here he is riding in Jerusalem. They're like, the king is here. The Lord is here. People are like, what? What? Right? I know we're hard on the Jewish people, but I think I'd be with them. I'd be like, this doesn't look like, this, if I'm being honest, it doesn't even look like what I want. What I want is you to come in here and start cracking some skulls. I'm a justice person. You got, you said you're God. Come here with some lightning, just some angels. Do, 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 right? You know, let's make it happen. <laughs> I get it. That's, that's where I'm prone in my spirit. But he doesn't. He comes in. He has no military plan. Doesn't seem to want to be exalted to be king. He doesn't act like that. He doesn't preach like that. He certainly doesn't live like that. He doesn't look like that. The people around him don't look like that. In fact, most of the time we find him in the grossest places in the city healing the sick. So the Jewish people do what is it you would think they do. They say, this is not the guy. And they reject him. What should have been a great day was actually incredibly tragic. Because we see in verse 41, if you're continuing with me in Luke 19, it says, And when he, Jesus, drew near the city and saw it, saw Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. It's a very ominous scripture. Some of you might follow some people on YouTube or like, this is what Vladimir Putin's gonna do. Nope, this already happened. This already happened. Literally, this is why Jesus is, is weeping because you had the zealots who were trying to bring about the Messiah by their physical, earthly means. And yet, in doing so, they rejected what heaven had sent. And so the zealots and also the, the, the nationalists of Israel who are trying to rise up did actually do that. There's going to be three major Jewish uprisings that occur after Jesus is dead and resurrected. And as the church begins, it was an incredibly tumultuous time. There was earthquakes. There was political upheaval. But one of them in 70 A.D., the Jews go into revolt, and Titus comes with his army, and he surrounds Jerusalem and besieges it like Jesus prophesied. 
And he breaks down the walls like Jesus prophesied. And he goes into the temple. And you know what he does? He tears down every stone in the temple. Jesus wasn't saying a thousand years. He's like, literally, in 45 years, this is going to happen to you. But you, because you're trying to force by earthly power what God has come to give you by heavenly authority. See, humans, we don't change too much. We still try to do that. And so what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus wants to teach his people to not miss it. And he wants us to receive it as well. And so he sits down with his disciples, and he has what I call a moment of clarity. He does a lot. He goes in, he purifies the temple. The people are thinking, okay, it's happening. Here we go. Here it is. Then he sits down, and he has a meal. He sits down for the Last Supper with the Passover dinner. The meal that goes way back to the freedom from the oppression of Egypt. For 1,500 years, they've been having this meal. And he has the bread, and he has the wine, and he has these symbols that the Jewish people would have profoundly, profoundly understood. Unleavened bread eaten at the first Passover. But you know bread didn't stop there for the Jewish people. It was bread from heaven, manna, that sustained them. And from that moment, bread was a symbol of life life. In fact, we read about when David goes into the temple and he eats some of the bread. Why was there bread in the temple? Because there was always bread in the temple because it was the bread of life. It was powerfully symbolic of life. It sat on the altar and the tabernacle and the temple. This is how God taught his people. And the wine, they would have seen the wine on the table generation after generation. They had been taught by their parents. Their parents had been taught by their parents and their parents and their parents for generations that the wine was used to remember sacrifice because, well, they weren't going to drink blood and wine is the closest visual, right? Constantly reminded them, literally since Egypt, they had been spending this moment representing that sin leads to death and nothing can pay for a life except another life. On Passover, it was a spotless lamb whose life was given to cleanse the sins of Israel. But Jesus says, I've come to do something greater. I've come to defy your expectations. So he teaches them in Luke 22. He says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Before I suffer, for I, tell, <clears throat> for I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they have eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is one of the most powerful moments for the Jewish people, the people of God who had believed that the Messiah was going to come through them and for them. They would have, had, would have held these elements in their hands for generations upon generations that had stood for the bread, that had stood for the life, that had stood for the blood that would be shed for them, that the blood of the Lamb covered them from judgment so that they might be free, so that they might be rescued, so that they might be brought into peace. And now Jesus is saying, I am 
am now the sacrifice that will bring you a peace beyond national peace, beyond momentary peace, but eternal peace. See, Israel expected, but Jesus delivered. Israel expected freedom from Rome. Jesus came to free us from the oppression of sin and death, to shed his blood for a debt we could not pay. Israel expected Jesus to establish them as a kingdom, but Jesus came to earth as fully man, fully God, to bring about his kingdom. Israel expected the Messiah to purify the temple, but Jesus came to purify us so that his presence might dwell within us by the power of the Holy Spirit as his temple, his resting place. They expected peace in the land, peace for their nation, but Jesus came to bring eternal peace for every person, Jew, Gentile, every single person. That's why in Romans 5 it says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 14 says, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, meaning it's not Jew and Gentile. It's not chosen and unchosen. It is those God has come for by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's not just about Israel, not Israel. It is all of the people, all of the nations, Jews, Gentiles. He said, I came for everyone to bring peace, peace for your soul. See, the triumphal entry is not just the entry of Jesus in Jerusalem. It is the day and the recognition that Jesus came to bring peace to your soul. The triumphal entry is not just Jesus on the docking in Jerusalem. It is the truth of salvation that wants to enter here into your heart. He came to bring peace. In fact, man, you can come up. Let me ask you a question as the band comes forward. And I want us to be honest here today. There's no point in gathering, I mean, in the morning and spending the time, if we, if we can't just be honest. I mean, honest with yourself. Can you be honest with yourself today? Do you need peace? Be honest. Look at your life. Look at the world. Look at your situation. Just you, right now in this moment, asking yourself, am I living in peace? Do you have peace in your heart? Do you have peace in your mind? Do you have peace in your soul? See, many of you will probably say, if I could just get this job, then I would have peace. If this war, if this conflict was over, then, man, then we'd have peace. If the person I liked was elected, then we'd have peace. If my family looked a certain way, then we'd have peace. If my bank account was full, then I'd have peace. Then I'd find rest. Then I'd be secure. And we hit it with that little phrase, if only. If only I could find that right person. If only we could get married. If only we could do this. If only I could have that. Then I would have peace. To which I say, maybe. Maybe you will. Maybe you'll feel better. You might be really good at rationalizing. So you might be able to distract yourself for a day, a week, maybe your whole life. I've met some people that are real good at it. 
But can I tell you, that's not peace, that's appeasement. And it won't last, it never does. We always need more. Companies bank on this. We always need more, more to fill that void, more earthly possessions, more things, more people, more experiences. We're all just hoping for peace. Might be thinking, how can we even begin to have peace in such a chaotic world? There's so much hurt, there's so much conflict, there's so much suffering. How can I have rest in a restless world? I want peace, but all I can do is really kind of like manufacture or pretend, and it never really lasts. Jesus holds up the cup, and he holds up the bread. He says, here is your peace. He points to the cross and says, your peace is not in the things of the world. Your peace is in me. He says, look at the bread. Look at the cross and see my body broken upon it for you. See it beaten and bruised and destroyed in the eyes of the world. And God says to you, Christ looks down and says to you, I became broken so that you could become whole. By my wounds, your soul is healed. And he says, look at the cup. This is my blood that was poured out for your sins. See, the judgment you were supposed to receive, Jesus says, I, I took that on myself. I suffered for you. I was pierced for you so that you would have peace through me. You can't be perfect. You can't pay that debt. So I paid it for you. Do you need peace? Do you need peace in your heart? Are you tired of being anxious? Are you tired of chaos in your spirit? Are you tired of uncertainty? Are you tired of being thrown around in your mind and your heart and living in that space? Jesus says, it's right here. I've already done it for you. He says, lay down that heavy weight. Lay down the weight of shame. Lay down the burden on your back. Lay down the thing that beats you down over and over, that weight of sin. You're not going to shake it off. What, you think you're just going to just get over it? You think you're going to work it off? You're only going to find the heaviness of trying to manufacture peace. He says, receive a true peace and rest for your soul through me. He says, I have it for you. You've been trying to earn it. He looks at you and says, you've been trying to win it. You've been trying to prove it. But you're not going to do enough. You're not going to measure up. And the saddest part is that you know. He says, I'm going to give you a peace that passes all understanding. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, all that I ask is that you give me your heart. All that I ask is you give me your heart. This is the beautiful exchange of Jesus Christ. This is what is so powerful about Jesus, is you don't come to him to prove anything. It almost sounds crazy is that you bring your brokenness, you bring your pain, you bring your suffering, you bring your shame, you bring all the sin that is weighing you down, and you confess it and lay it at his feet, and you're made free. And then in turn, he gives you the peace that passes all understanding over your life. See, if you confess him as Lord and believe in your heart that he's raised from the dead, we know that through Jesus you'll have peace over your heart today. He says, I've already done it. I've already done it. Do you need peace today? 
Jesus is asking you today, do you need peace today? Would you stand with me? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I want you to focus if you can, you and this moment. I want to ask you, I'm going to do two prayers this morning. The very first one is, if you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, and you're saying, God, I need forgiveness. I'm a sinner. I recognize that I cannot be Lord of my own life. And I need you, Jesus, to be Lord of my life. I give you my heart, and I want to receive your peace. Can I tell you, if you say yes to Jesus, we believe. We believe that every single one of you who says yes to Jesus will receive in that moment hope for your future and healing for your past. We believe that for you today, you can experience the freedom and the power of a new life in Jesus Christ. That's you and you want to say yes to Jesus. Jesus, I need you as my Lord and Savior to a miracle in my life and the peace that comes through you. Would you lift your hand and put it back down? I want to pray for you today. Let me pray for you. If you lifted your hand today, I just want to pray that you would receive these words over your life. Jesus, I thank you for the hands that were raised this morning. God, I pray right now, and we thank you that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So wherever you are, if you raise your hand in that moment, I just want you, wherever you are in your heart, say, Jesus, I give you my heart. All of my sin, I repent and lay at your feet. Make me new today. I receive your peace. The second thing is you're just in this moment, I would love and be honored to pray with you, is that if you have been seeking heavenly peace in earthly ways, here's the amazing thing as believers, often what we will do is we will give God our heart, but we'll take it back when things are tough. When we get a little anxious, we'll take it back. Ah, oh God, I give you my heart, but man, I, not right now. And we struggle with anxiety and uncertainty, but today Jesus wants to give you peace. How does he do it? He does it by the Holy Spirit that's indwelt with you. One of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. And I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work of peace in your life. If you're here today and you're like, you know what? I've been struggling with some anxiety. Maybe it's fear, uncertainty. You have control issues, whatever it is. And you just want that freedom and you want that peace. Would you join me in lifting our hands together that we would pray the peace of the Lord over your life. I'm going to pray over you today. Jesus, I thank you that through you there is peace that you are the Prince of Peace, that you are the Lord of Lords. We thank you, mighty God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit of peace is possible for every life and every person. That God, first and foremost, you see us here today and you've given us peace for our souls through salvation, that we do not need to fear about our condition or state, but you have declared over every life here today that they are children of God, that they are sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ. And I pray right now, God, especially for those who struggle with control, who in the moments of difficulty take back themselves from you, I pray right now that we would, we would honestly, that we would repent before you and we would give our hearts to you completely and say, God, you have control, you have my heart, you have my life, you have my family, and I pray, Holy Spirit, right now, that your peace would reign in every heart, that you would reign in every heart, because God, you reign 
You reign in authority and power and glory and might. And I pray right now peace upon every heart. For the person who has been covered with anxiety, I pray right now that you would break them free in the name of Jesus. That they would not submit to that. That they wouldn't even worship that. That they wouldn't claim that over their life. But they would be freed right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that the peace of God by the Holy Spirit would reign in their heart. We praise you, God. And we say you reign, you reign in peace over our lives. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Banner Church Podcast. We hope this message was impactful for you. Check the episode notes to visit our website, follow us on social media, and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you again next week.